2: And most importantly, the survivor understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. So one of the things I find interesting about fMRI is it doesn't directly measure neuroplastic change. And I always thought that You would have to get really lucky, drill a hole through the skull, through the meninges, and somehow get a very big microscope and see actual synaptogenesis. And you'd have to get very lucky that those two neurons just happen to connect at that point. But you're saying in this model, they glow green and you can see that process happening in individual neurons. I
0: feel so lucky to have lived long enough for these techniques in neuroscience that I had nothing to do with to be dropped into my lap. Yeah, these are transgenic mice that seem to be normal, except they have been manipulated to have fluorescent proteins expressed in a subset of their cortical neurons so that you can see the dendritic arbors of the cortical neurons either through thin skull or through implanted windows and so you can watch the same um, parts of a neuron over time and see how they they change and because you have the windows are big you look at a whole big dendritic field and at least with cortical changes in response to learning new ways of moving, those changes seem not just to be in one neuron. I mean, there's crazy activity that gets instigated. And after a stroke, there's crazy activity. By activity, I don't mean activity. I mean, uh, structural changes in neurons. Uh, uh, Structural neuroplasticity um, is just explosive in response to strokes, because that's the remodeling process.
1: In the previous episode of Noggins and Neurons, Pete and I reviewed what we've learned and where we're going. We talked about Noggins and Neurons podcast data, who we think our listeners are, and then we talked about reasons for numbers. Hopefully you'll enjoy our speculations along with the viewpoints that we shared about our favorite episodes.
2: Well, welcome Teresa A. Jones to Noggins and Neurons. We really appreciate your time today. I've been a big fan of your work for a long time. And uh, so thank you for coming.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here.
2: I understand this is your first podcast. It is. Well, um, you're our first neuroscientist. And so there's a lot of firsts going on. And if you knew how much of a fanboy and fangirl that Deb and I are about neuroscience, we, well, let's just put it this way. We hope that you're not the only neuroscientist that comes on. I think it's really important that the animal research be translated you know, from benchside to bedside and that clinicians in rehab understand how important it is to let the animal research not dictate what they do clinically, but inform them in some way and also give them a perspective of what's coming down the pike because it goes from animals to humans in clinical research And then it goes to bedside so um, that's what we're hoping for today a sort of insight into what it is that you think that we can use clinically to help people that have had a brain injury
0: yeah well I, i i'm glad you you mentioned that because i i would like to say early on that my perspective is not clinical it is from rats and mice and in general i think What the animal models are good for is for uh, uh, figuring out in general, the way things work and for pointing to possibilities for treatment. Um, And that's what they're good for. For details though, we need humans. So the the bedside needs to go back to the bench a lot
2: more. One of the things that I think is sort of interesting is that you and If I may call him Randy Nudo, did some of the seminal research with the brain implantation ESTIM trial that then turned into a variety of trials. And uh, one of them I worked on, the Everest trial, where it was a, um, and I'm going to get this wrong, and you know much more about sort of the surgery side of this, but it was a thumbnail size electrode that went over the dura right around the area of infarct. And they were ESTIMmed on their brain right around the same time that they got rehab. And that was a good example of where maybe the translation was lost between the animal science and the human science. And you, you had suggested, I saw there's a talk, and if it's okay with you, we're going to put that, a link to that talk on the show notes that you have on, on YouTube, where you pointed that out that we, well, not we, because we were just one of the many Site that was involved. I was at University of Cincinnati, and I did the outcome measures, the Fugelmeyer and the arm motor ability test. Ah. I think what the point that you made was that when they translated it from animals to humans, it didn't. They didn't get the translation right. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, would you mind talking about a little bit about that translation in any way that you want to, and see see where we go with that?
0: Yeah. Well, in this specific example this was trucking along as a delightful bench to bedside kind of initiative where we had labs such as mine working in rodent models other rodent model labs in different stroke models a primate non-human primate lab to ease the translation and then the clinical side and what happened uh, I think is that a lot of the details on the animal model side that would have predicted some of the failures on the clinical side just didn't get seen in time to affect the, the study design um, and uh, probably contributed to the lack of effect. Basically, uh, some things got tested that we had already shown wouldn't work, and and so uh, how do you fix how do you fix that? I honestly think, and I've been trying to do this throughout my career, we just need to get more of the clinical side and the animal side in the same room long enough that we even know how to talk to each other. (laughs) And that requires both sides to be willing to interrupt the other and say, Hey, you need to explain to me what you mean by a rat. Um, I, I've been doing this long enough. I know what a rat is by now, but, it, it requires a lot of effort from the animal model side too, though. There's a lot of things that if, that get missed in the absence of the kind of clinical experience that you guys have. So, humility is called for on the animal model side, uh, for sure.
2: So, just so everybody knows, clinicians are pretty well versed in electrical stimulation as it goes on surface electrodes on the, on the skin overlying the muscle that they're interested in e-stimming. But this was on the brain. But you still hold out hope, I think, that Easton to the brain may turn out to work. It's just that, as you say, everybody has to get in the same room and talk to each other about this a little bit so we get the parameters right.
0: The parameters and the boundary conditions. And I do think that the animal model side did its job in showing that this is a possibility. And it showed some of the boundary conditions, the conditions in which it wasn't going to work. A big one for for this particular situation was if you couldn't detect at the level of movement, at least, the effects of stimulation in the brain, that went with it, not working um that could be elect you know rats have tiny muscles and so we often observe movement instead of putting uh, electrodes in to to record them and possibly due to too severe damage to corticospinal tract me is potentially a variable
2: in humans Um,
0: yeah potentially yeah um that that would limit its its efficacy um i also do wonder i'm this work preceded a much bigger uh, field in non-invasive uh, stimulation. That there's still potential there. The conditions are going to matter. <laughs> not the same treatment's not going to work for all stroke. Clearly.
2: So when you say non-invasive, are you talking about transcranial magnetic stimulation?
0: Yeah, or uh, transcranial magnetic or uh, direct current stimulation, mm-hmm. yeah, which we we are not studying in the lab. In the case of magnetic stimulation people have been studying rodents but there there's the issue that it's really hard to get the focus of stimulation that you can get in the big brain humans in a uh-huh. rodent with that that approach
2: when you think about the difference between the rodents that you use and you use rats and mice
0: mm-hmm.
2: right um there is a big difference between you usually do it when they're relatively young and they're healthy right
0: uh, uh well Healthy, yes. We actually, we aim for older and we've done studies in, in aged animals. And when I say aged, we're aiming for roughly the equivalent of the 60 to 60-ish to year old, not the 90-year old, because it seems quite relevant to chronic outcome to study at that age group. It is not every study because it's really expensive and hard. It takes a long time because we age them in the lab. Ourselves, so so not every study, but uh, testing across ages is actually a goal of ours.
2: So, if it's a mouse, how, how long does a mouse live? The kind of mice that you work with
0: the the mice, uh, well, uh, most of the mice we work with live two and a half ish uh, years, uh, and similar the the rat strain that we're working with can live over three, but their lifespan is variable, and so we tend not to go out that that long with them uh, so mice too-ish uh, mice two-ish. and so a, a one-year-old is a quite old mouse
2: yeah yeah that is one of the problems with translating from animal models to human models because the human is 65 years old they've had a knee replacement they have diabetes they have multiple core morbidities whereas the the animals are relatively healthy I'm trying to figure out like what clinicians can what they can hang their hat on in terms of of this research? And is there anything that they probably should stay away from because it's not applicable to human populations?
0: So the the advantage of the animal models is you can study these things once at a time. And so um, it's not helpful to study them all at a time. Uh, because not everybody has every comorbidity. So we're not working with diabetic models, um, but several research groups are. Those same research groups aren't always working with aging models, but, but, but mine are. Um, but I do think it's reasonable to start. Uh, healthy and young people do get strokes. Um, and it is reasonable to look at healthy and young people with strokes. But if you're translating, testing whether these things matter in common stroke conditions is a good idea. I don't know about the knee replacement, but diabetes for sure. And I think that the field is aware of that. Um, And as well as aging, the field's very aware of that. Uh, Aging is a challenge um, because of its expense. And so you don't usually start there. You usually start young, but you test for generalizability uh, to aging.
2: Is it expensive because you have to hold the animals for a long time to a- essentially age Yes. Yes,
0: yeah, we age our own animals. So you can't have the brilliant idea today and go start the experiment tomorrow. You've started in a, a year. And the pandemic um, loss of our colonies has been a big setback for uh, studying. We lost a bunch of aging animals. So uh, yeah, another one of these pandemic effects.
2: Wait, did they catch COVID? <laughs>
0: Uh, no we had to reduce sizes of colonies drastically so that animal care uh, caretakers could be spread out in space i so, see yeah i see yeah so so be patient on the aging for a little while because that was a <laughs> setback. back um uh, there you can buy old animals nih has a repository of Old, an old rat model, but their motor cortex is funny uh, compared to this outbred strain of rats that we're using. So when we, uh, so when we use them, we age them ourselves. But there's also this other issue: we house animals socially because that's normal for for rodents, and and they have. Uh, things to chew on and eat, and we want them to get relatively normal manual skills before they get into our experiment. And so, if I buy them from a company old, um, I have no control over these things.
2: I see. Yeah. 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 All that stuff is experience dependent and Mm -hmm. environmental enrichment matters. So, I can imagine how playing with other rats and mice, it's probably pretty important in their Mm -hmm. normal development. Yeah. Deb, did you have anything you wanted to... Chime in about. I have
1: never worked in a research anything other than my little master's project. It feels super small compared to everything that we're talking about here. And Pete, you've already asked the questions that I had. So,
2: so I wonder, Doctor Jones, if you would, can you give us one thing like that would be really good for therapists to know that you learned in animal research in a stroke model that they could maybe use clinically tomorrow or some insight that these animals have given you about recovery?
0: I don't know if I can do that quick. Well, first, let me do say I don't consider myself a preclinical researcher. I'm a basic researcher. Um, we dabbled with the, with the cortical stimulation approach, but almost all my research is, is uh, focused on understanding rather than identifying treatment. Approaches, And I do think rats and mice are, are really good uh, for advancing understanding and good for treatment approaches, but they have their limitations. A big picture thing I can say, I think that you two already know very, very well, but maybe there's some listener out there, is that the behavioral experiences that follow stroke are actually major players in stroke outcomes major players and that's because they shape the brain's outcome from stroke this whole process of brain remodeling in response to injury is something that gets driven by the behavioral experiences that follow stroke and um, that's true regardless of interventions Um, if people survive a stroke they're behaving animals And their behavioral experiences after stroke will shape brain remodeling. And our field um, has not gotten a a good enough handle in either the animal or clinical side in the ways that that matters. But think about it.
2: (laughs) One of the things that happens a lot with clinicians is they're not sure when to get intensive. If you look at something like constraint-induced therapy, Ed Taub's work, this idea that you should get really intensive. And I have always thought about right around the subacute phase, which is when the penumbra is coming back online. And you don't want those neurons that are coming back that have, for the last 65 years have been working on grasp and release to just prune away and, and not do anything that's learned non-use. Do you have any insight from the animal models about what the timing of intensity, when we talk about intensity things like Mm constraint-induced. That's pretty intensive. Is Is there a time when you can make the infarct worse if you do too much too soon? And how might that translate to human models?
0: yeah so um i actually have been a while but i wrote a review paper that i wish i had told you about on this topic so it it wasn't my own work my doctoral mentor timothy shallard was the first to find in animal models it, this was a uh, dorothy Kozlowski was the lead author this was her dissertation work that forced use of the impaired limb starting at the time of the stroke-like damage this was cortical damage and continuing over at least the first week after the stroke increased the size of the damage now this is 24 7. it's extreme the animals weren't getting training simultaneously but that it was intense enough Um, Other labs and other models have also shown deleterious effects of this really intense, early on rehabilitative activity. So does this mean it's always gonna happen? No, but there is potential for it. And so when is safe? in the animal models after about a week, um, but that's uh, that's animals, right? I do think you need to be careful timelines and animals and how to translate them to humans is a guesstimate i think what they're better for suggesting is there's a potential to do harm early now in terms of training manipulations simply giving animals practice with their paretic limb how early is too early well that's unclear in part because practice with the paretic limb that's not forced the animals don't feel like it they won't do it early (laughs) and so that hasn't been that well established um but i do think there's potential for harm early. There's, there is also good support for the likelihood that earlier onsets can be helpful relative to really delayed onsets, right? But that research was never suggesting, oh, you've got to go early and intense. It's just suggesting starting during an early window versus a really delayed window is probably better. But how that would translate to timelines and humans, I'm completely unclear. On. And I think we, I think we need to be careful um, in not trying to glean time points from the animal studies and how they translate to humans. I,
2: I understand your reluctance, but still, I'm going to pick at that scab. I will make that leap. There was an early trial in constraint-induced therapy. It was called the Vectors Trial, uh, Alex Stromrick, and he found the same thing. If you did too much too soon, the outcomes were worse. (laughs) But there's this pressure on therapists, and Deb could probably speak to this more because she worked in acute care, that they're literally saying, you know, as soon as they wake up from the stroke, you got to go. It's, it's very important, and it's a mischaracterization of the way the brain works, the way the brain heals, how much time it needs. And so I think that that would be interesting to therapists that, look, there is a time right after the brain injury, they need to convalesce.
0: Yeah, and uh, there's that, and there is not good support from the animal literature that says you need to get up and go. There's not. Um, now, this doesn't mean that you can't intervene. Uh, Since you mentioned the vectors, Alex Dromaric, I don't know if you saw this. um, I think it was last fall, they were measuring that using activity monitors uh, starting in the hospital bed. So very early activity of how uh, stroke survivors were using their hands. And this disuse of the impaired extremity was evident from the very uh, beginning. You may not need to have early, intense use of the the impaired extremity, but maybe at least uh, try to encourage it, (laughs) right? (laughs) Um, try Try to discourage its complete disuse. There's no indication that that could be harmful, whereas the disuse could be.
2: Yeah. And so then it becomes a discussion of intensity because often therapists will say, well, what do you mean by intensive? What I think I mean is constraint-induced where you're constraining the unaffected side. And right after the the brain injury, you're forcing them to use, forced use of the affected side. That's a little draconian where, as as you say, if you can get them to move it, and as yeah. the brain is coming back online, it remembers, hey, this is what I used to control. I want to control it again.
0: It's possible, and again, rat researcher here. It might be helpful just to uh, to <laughs> encourage them to 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 use it together with the compensatory way that they're using their their good limb. Uh, just involve the 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 bad limb. I hope it's okay if I say good and bad because I mix up the more proper terms
2: for that's the same term those are the same terms I use and I've been dinged mercilessly (laughs) on Amazon reviews. It's just it's easier to say good and bad, not in the common sense of the word good and bad, but in the sort of old English that something's not working quite right. It's a lot softer than the affected side or the less affected side. It's just too it's too hard to read. So yes, good and bad works with with me
1: you know and everything that you two are talking about the too much, the not enough, and the behavioral. So I worked in critical care units in a stroke center, and we got people up. We got them mobilized, not so much to get their affected side moving, but to get them moving so that we could prevent pneumonia and things like that. But there are always... Those people who are super impulsive and they just want that affected side to work so bad, and they'll just keep trying over and over and over again. So, those are that's kind of the person that came to my mind when you were talking about all of this. And I guess I'm trying to figure out the behavioral components and what does that mean for us? What should we be encouraging? Should we be discouraging? something
2: I'm going to predict that Dr. Jones doesn't want to talk about that, but I could be wrong. She, well, she yeah, doesn't was, work with humans.
0: I was going to say that, that I think you should take what I say with a grain of salt, but I see nothing in the literature that suggests you should discourage them from using their affected side appear you may disagree with me but it's not the same as constraint induced movement at therapy Um, it seems hard to believe they could overuse it during the time that they're actually awake
1: yeah because they're really not awake very much they do tend people do tend to sleep more following a stroke so can we talk more about the behavioral experience
0: oh yeah well you
1: know i'm Besides being a neuroscientist,
0: I'm not just a neuroscientist. I'm a behavioral neuroscientist. And, and what that means is is I study brains to understand behavior. And so I can talk about uh, behaviors all day long. I think that the reason I stress it is stroke changes behavior. Brains evolved to change in response to behavioral change. And so it seems safe to assume that the behavioral changes that are instigated by stroke will change the post-stroke brain because those behavioral ch- uh, changes start early after stroke. They also overlap with the period when the brain is undergoing this really dramatic, widespread repair and remodeling uh, process, which is beautiful. that repair and remodeling process is dependent upon neural activity patterns and what determines neural activity patterns are behavioral experiences. And so I think that you need to study the way behaviors are changed by stroke in order to understand the mechanisms of stroke recovery as a result. I hope I just made sense uh,
2: out there. That, That does make sense. And often people have had a stroke, talk about the anniversary of their stroke as their rebirth day. They see that their brain has fundamentally changed, not just because there was an injury, but because they changed behaviorally, as you point out, which then changes the brain. It becomes this big cycle. So that kind of makes sense that the two feed on each other.
0: With that that big general idea, the most obvious ways that, that uh, to me, not, <laughs> not saying obvious in general, but the most obvious behavioral changes that occur after stroke are the are the ways that people um, and animal models compensate for the onset of impairments, that the the behavioral adaptation, compensation, behavioral adaptation to stroke is actually a really remarkable uh, behavioral change. Rats and mice and and non-human primates and humans, all incredibly clever at coming up with strategies for getting by with life in the the presence of an impairment. And so uh, uh, behavioral compensation is actually a profound category of of behavioral change that is probably normally, well, at least animal models suggest is probably normally a major driver in the patterns of brain remodeling to stroke, for better or worse.
2: Completely makes sense, and it happens in humans. In fact, therapists are in love with this concept of focus on function. That you can use compensatory stuff, even though the brain is in a battle with itself to recover what it once had during a period in which the penumbra is coming back online. There's all these neurotropic factors coming in and driving cortical change, brain changes, learning, and it and it makes the good side even better. I mean, if it's the non-dominant side, it ends up doing stuff it's never done before. So now you have this great opportunity for the brain to do exactly the wrong thing because we're focusing on function, which is necessarily focusing on compensatory movement. But that kind of makes sense because the therapist wants the person to get on with their life. The person wants to get on with their life. Heaven knows managed care wants them out. So there's tons of pressure to do the wrong thing in a way. And I wonder if it would be helpful if you would talk to insurance companies and tell them that, hey, if you do compensatory movement too much, I mean, they're not listening to us. That's clear. You know, the compensatory movement can can in really halt recovery in a lot of ways.
1: Well,
0: I, there are. There is clinical support for that as well. So it doesn't, need. I'd be happy to talk to insurance companies if they would listen, <laughs> but I doubt that they <laughs> that they might. Yeah, I think that compensation is not necessarily bad, but there is converging support from the animal models, from my own work <laughs> over decades. And from the clinical side, the compensation coupled with disuse has the potential to, uh, to impede recovery of more normal movement. You guys have done a whole podcast on disuse. My work with rodents suggests that uh, getting up and returning function by learning to, to rely solely on the good hand is really potently shaping brain remodeling uh, responses in a way that makes it not change in response to practice with the bad hand as much, improving the more normal that you might get back if you hadn't um, uh, learned to get by with life with reliance on the, on, the, on the good hand. I'm thinking of Mindy Levine's work on uh, stroke survivors with uh, I think mild to moderate impairments that in using the paretic hand relying on trunk movements to extend the hand when they had the capacity for more normal hand extension in the more normal way was was deleterious to that recovery there's of course going to be some point where that more normal is not going to be possible and the compensation is a beautiful solution to it and you should uh, you should drive brain plasticity to support it but uh, I think there's also many people that are probably not realizing a level of function that they could uh, as a result of that. And I feel comfortable saying that because it's not just based on my work, although my work definitely
2: supports it. That's Mm. why you're here. And and I think you just made a really important point that clinicians can use tomorrow clinically. I think so, too. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, And I did read your articles, so I might not have watched that video, but I did read your articles and you made the statement that compensation is often mistaken for recovery. And I wonder it clinically, if that could be the difference between a trained clinical eye and one that's not as trained, less experienced and knowing how to pick out that compensatory pattern because sometimes they are pretty subtle.
0: Well, I can't speak on the clinical side. It is definitely the case on the animal model side that compensation gets mistaken for recovery. My strong impression is on the clinical side, you guys are more savvy than we are with behavior.
1: We asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is, if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have although I still don't understand what all of those numbers mean. And one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them, this podcast, and you know, just, just making it easier for people to apply research-based concepts in their practices or their recoveries. So I think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end and... Whether or not people donate, are able to donate, we appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that?
2: That's true. Um, and we do have a Venmo account. Do you remember the address? I do. It's at Neurons. At Neurons. That's pretty simple. It is. And it's in our title. So if you want to help out, look, we do put a lot of work into this and we want to keep it going. And, uh, you know, as Deb said, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yes, we giggle a lot. And yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20%, is going to go to the... The Brain
1: Injury Association of America?
2: That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers, and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment.
1: It sounds like a nice organization, and I'm glad that you told me about it.
2: Yep. We want to support all people that have had brain injury. And we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at Neurons.
1: Yeah. And we have goals for the future of this podcast. And one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more and the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us. Mm, that's true.
2: Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks. In one of your papers, I think it was also a review paper, where you say doing kinematics on rodents is next to impossible because I think you literally said that the reflective markers don't stick very well.
0: Um, Yeah, uh, but you also
2: said that there was something coming down the pike that may take care of that, and I'm interested. What is that? What are kinematics for a rodent?
0: Yeah, well, I'm not doing this work. Unfortunately, I don't have to. um, I know that. People are attempting to use machine learning approaches and other automatic video processing approaches to, to, to get more detailed quality of movement measures that more, might better approximate uh, what's being done in, clin- in clinical. I haven't seen an explosion of those in the literature yet, but I'm expecting them any day now,
2: yeah. Maybe like little rat suits where they put it on and the, the reflective markers are already on the suit. I think we actually did that in a study at Kessler. Yeah. Yeah. So we got to well, work they, on the rat suit.
0: Well, with the rat suits, um, yeah, uh, they they will just chew on the suit. So. <laughs>
2: <laughs> There's a behavioral adaptation that we don't have to worry about with humans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, May I just digress a little bit? I want to—I stalked you online a little bit. It's, it's not stalking, really. What it is, is uh, I'm curious about people and how you got into this and everything else. And I want to just say that our lives have sort of crossed paths, not just with the brain implantation study, but um, forever. My parents owned a house in Summit, New Jersey. They just sold it very recently, and they they you know where this is going, right? So um and and they sold it recently, but they bought it in like the early seventies. We didn't live there much, we went overseas. Uh, did you spend some time in the next town over, New Providence? Did I read that correctly?
0: I yeah, I don't can't imagine when you read that. Um yes. Actually my when was it? It was it's like Sixth through eighth grade, my family lived there, and it was actually Berkeley Heights. We lived in walking distance to Bell Labs. Uh
2: huh. Yeah. I know where yeah. that is. Yeah. Yeah. So, but take,
0: it, it takes me, it takes me like a full week in, in New Jersey to get the accent back. Yeah.
2: <laughs> the price of, I don't know, the path mock, it's sort of like that nasally kind of thing. Yeah. I miss it sometimes. Not really. I, I, we moved, I'm in the hub of the universe, Cincinnati, Ohio. You live in Austin. It's gorgeous. Where Deb lives, it's gorgeous. Don't move to Cincinnati. Just I'm (laughs) I'm stuck here now. Um, But yeah, I mean, we left when I was like uh, 13 years old. So, and you're a few years younger than me. So there may have been a time that we saw each other at a football game or, down at the at the local ice cream parlor it's very very possible. Also w- when did you move to Austin please?
0: Um, so I moved here for my current gig in 2000 but I went to grad school here. yeah um, so that would have been 80 so I was here from 87 to 92.
2: That's exactly when I lived there. This is crazy sauce. We so probably did
0: you, we probably know each other. And yeah, we, we probably forgot.
2: do. <laughs> so, um, were you, did you ever go see bands when you were Austin in Austin? You were back in your uh, grad school days. Uh, uh,
0: I, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I was young. Yes. Yes. So
2: I I was young too, and I was in a band, Flowerhead, that uh, was. Voted the best new band in Austin, and we got signed out of South by Southwest. So you probably came saw our, our band, but maybe not. I, we may have been I a little I probably, bit
0: loud for you. I probably did, but I was young and crazy back then, and so, um, so I'm sure that I, I became amnesic.
2: <laughs> so when I hey, my what research in stays in Austin.
1: <laughs> my research landed information about some people thinking that. University of Texas at Austin is a party school, but most people go there because of the academics.
0: Well, you know, I think that those are... I, I, that uh, that if it's a party school that the undergrads here um, uh, sure do work hard.
1: Um, that's awesome.
0: Uh, they're not here now, but my lab is usually about half my lab is undergrad. i I have first authored undergrad papers uh, quite often, yeah,
2: so they're they're good here. They work hard, they play hard though. you don't know what they're doing on their off hours. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, you did too, right? Um, and those, right. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> and look, our brains don't fully develop to what, 25, 27. So all that stuff is pre-27. Yeah. We're fine. We can, because if, if we're going to dredge up that stuff, forget it. It's all over. Little... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's not. We all been there, done that.
0: They're enriching They're enriching their environment. Yes. That activity.
1: Right. Lots of behavioral change going on there. <laughs> So, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the bimanual work that you've done.
0: Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, this is actually a new direction. We haven't done very much work on it, but I'm just fascinated with it. As you know, Deborah, there's a ton of a ton of interest in bimanual training effects on the clinical side, and it's not been paralleled on the animal research side, A, but also I think that, the animal research side has not done much work on how the mechanisms of bimanual skill learning, even in intact animals versus unimanual skill learning. And so I think this is a a huge knowledge gap. That's a problem given that we use our hands together most of the time, um, even after stroke. Um, Animals certainly use their paws together most of the time. And so we set out to just ask the simple question of whether training a bimanual task would influence function after stroke. There was a big issue that we didn't have, we had to develop the task uh, for it. And a limitation working with rodents is you can't tell them how to do a motor task. You just have to create a motor task that encourages them to do it the way you want to. The bimanual task we came up with was to have them reach and grasp for a piece of popcorn that was on a pin that they couldn't get unless they used both paws. The very first rat that we have performed the task uh, did this in a fairly symmetrical way. That could be sort of relevant to clinical rehabilitation approaches. That was the last rat that did it. And so uh, the task does not resemble any bilateral training approaches that are used clinically, but is still useful for the question of whether practice in it in a skillful bimanual task influences uh, unimanual function with bad limb that was the question and we found that it did so animals had unilateral motor cortical infarcts that impaired one forelimb the forelimb that they preferred to use for unimanual skill reaching tasks that they were proficient in so an impaired function in that unimanual task The bimanual training over a period of weeks greatly improved the unimanual function with the parietic limb. And it did that despite the fact that animals performed the bimanual tasks with major compensatory reliance on the good limb. So extensive bimanual training, which they were compensating in big ways on the good limb to get the tasks done, greatly improved unimanual performance with the parietic forelimb. I feel like it was fortunate that they wouldn't perform that bimanual task in the way I actually wanted them to. They were free to use compensatory behaviors, or we wouldn't have seen this. And so it's making me see that there could be something really powerful about involving the bad limb with the good limb, even if you're compensating on the good limb. But that's this, I'm talking about a single study. Uh, We are currently in the last stages of refining the mouse version of this task, which is the puffed millet reaching task. Millet seeds that are puffed is just the right size for a little mouse. The advantage of the mice is that they have neurons that glow green. And so in individual mice, we can watch the dendrites of those neurons and and there's a dendritic spines change in both hemispheres. And so we want to use them to try to understand what's different about the patterns of synaptic changes across both hemispheres that occur in response to learning new ways of using the good limb on its own versus together with the the bad limb. Uh, the hypothesis is, is that the uh, the bimanual strategy can drive synaptic changes that facilitate unimanual you know, function in the injured hemisphere, whereas the uh, the unimanual experiences of the good limb drive changes that compete with those. I hope that wasn't that, that
2: No, that was good. So one of the things I find interesting about fMRI is it doesn't directly measure neuroplastic change. And I always thought that you would have to get really lucky, drill a hole through the skull, through the meninges, and somehow get a very big microscope and see actual synaptogenesis. And you'd have to get very lucky that those two neurons just happen to connect at that point. But you're saying in this model, they glow green and you can see that process happening in individual neurons.
0: I feel so lucky to have lived long enough. For these techniques in neuroscience that I had nothing to do with to be dropped into my lap. Yeah, these are transgenic mice that seem to be normal, except they have been manipulated to have fluorescent proteins expressed in a subset of their cortical neurons so that you can see the dendritic arbors of the cortical neurons either through thin skull or through implanted windows and so you can watch the same um, parts of a neuron over time and see how they if they change and because you have the windows are big, you look at a whole big dendritic field, and at least with cortical changes in response to learning new ways of moving, those changes seem not just to be in one neuron. I mean, there's crazy activity that gets instigated. And after a stroke, There's crazy activity. By activity, I don't mean activity. I mean uh, structural changes in neurons. Uh, uh, Structural neuroplasticity um, is just explosive in response to strokes because that's the remodeling process.
2: Hmm. Well, When you say a window, what what does the window look like? Is it microscopic? I mean, how do you see this stuff?
0: The window is a glass cover slip of the kind you put on a histological slide. And you implant that into the skull of a mouse. And you can look down and see their cortex, even or just walking around their cage. Um, but for imaging <laughs> that,
2: I, I know, I, I didn't develop this. We well, should do this in humans. <laughs> I, I we wish we just got to you know. <laughs> DNA change them so that they glow. Yeah. At the,
0: yeah, I mean, it is. It's really cool. Now, to see the dendritic spines, you do need to put them under a fairly fancy microscope, a two-photon microscope. And we, but most of our work, we briefly anesthetize them. Um, but other people train them to be comfortable under a microscope, often because they're on a little ball that they're moving. They give them something to do so they can image them repeatedly. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's, it truly is amazing to me to be able to see individual... Most of my career, neuroplasticity was inferred from histological brain sections between animals at different time points or after different manipulations. And now you can actually just watch it within individual animals. I don't know how we would do this in humans, though. I've, um, mice are used for this not just because they're transgenic, but also they're a little easier because their skull isn't so thick. Oh my gosh, with a human skull, that would be a tough. <laughs>
2: you literally have a window onto the brain
0: yeah it's
1: really cool
2: that's fascinating
0: it seems like sci-fi to me and i'm a neuroscientist so yeah
2: (laughs) it is kind of sci-fi yeah oh boy one of the reasons i think that Everybody in rehab research on the clinical side is interested in in the upper extremity is because the hand takes up so much cortical real estate. We kind of, th- except for the mouth, like there's nothing bigger up there in both the motor and sensory homunculus. And um, and we, f- I think we figure that if we can figure the hand thing out, I mean, especially finger extension and. Uh, rodents have these great they look like little witch fingers they're beautiful (laughs) quite beautiful hands i used to show it in my talk and and they 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 it's like the long nails and they have a little thumb but i understand that they also grasp through their with their thumb as well Mm -hmm. so you have this great sort of organ the hand and then if we can figure that out, we could easily superimpose it on something like dorsi and plantar flexion lower extremity, which is a much simpler apparatus. Um, but also the other reason we focus on the hand is we got rats and mice and they're so human-like in their representation. And then we can see their brain as as their the neurons are connecting. That's probably pretty important too.
0: Yeah, I, I do think that Rats and mice and the fact that it is really fascinating to watch see how primate like it is that they use their hands is is a driver but it doesn't mean lower extremity isn't, isn't also an important uh, uh, isn't also really worthy of a lot of focus There is the issue with rats and mice that they don't they don't walk like humans on 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 two legs but on the other hand they given that you can still learn. Things for them.
2: Yeah. I guess the other problem with the lower extremity in humans is you can do finger tapping tasks, wrist extension, flexion. You can do stuff without shaking the head so that the fMRI is blurred. Whereas with the lower extremity, such big bones and big muscles and big movements that if you do that, it, you gotta cage people and it gets awkward, let's say.
0: Oh, I hadn't thought of that. See, I things I don't consider because
1: I don't work with humans. <laughs>
2: You just look right into their their brains.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so cool. So I wonder if I could shift the conversation just a little bit and get a little bit kind of personal, but not as personal as (laughs) Pete. So I'm just curious. What is the most important thing that you've learned from being a researcher?
0: Well, that's. that's a
2: <laughs> that's a big one.
0: That's a big one. I'm I'm not sure I could identify one thing uh, from being a researcher or, or or from from
1: from my research. Whichever way you choose to interpret that, that doesn't help, Deb. I know. <laughs> I really, I you, you know, as down. an occupational therapist, I'm kind of interested in the person who's doing the work. So I am. I'm interested in from being a researcher. But then I think my next question has to do with the research end. So if you'd like to answer both or none.
0: Well, from being a researcher, um, I think that, I guess I would say the uh, the most important thing I've learned is that persistence and humility pay off in, in combination, I think about half of my predictions are wrong, and the hypotheses that are wrong, especially when it's been like the opposite finding, are the things I get most excited about, right? And I'm, and I'm glad I do, because it drives my research, but I often have wondered if I was stubborn, if, if, if I'd be miserable as, <laughs> as a science, <laughs> yeah. scientist. Yeah, and, and I guess uh, right up there would be the fact that science is really fun. I mean, despite all the hassle of having to get money and all of that, I feel really lucky to be a scientist. Who else gets to go try to fill knowledge gaps just because you're really interested? I mean, who gets to do that?
2: You do. That's I do. I do. (laughs) How long have you had your lab open uh, now? How long has it been contiguously open?
0: So this, uh, so this lab since 2001. um, And then I had a lab at University of Washington um, uh, from 97 until
2: 2001. I'm old. You're not as old as I am, sister. I remember you back in New Providence. You are just a little kid. Um, So your your lab has been through four presidential administrations. Does that sound about right? Is that right? Uh, So there was... uh, Yeah. Yeah. George W. and then Obama. And then um, who's after Obama? uh,
0: He's hard to
2: remember. And then uh, Biden. Yeah. Do you feel like, because what we found in our lab was that under one administration, they weren't funding anything that was coming out of the NIH, and when Obama came to office, he, he made a big deal about saying, we're going to fund shovel-ready projects, stuff where immediately people will be hired because the economy was tanking. I mean, it was terrible <laughs> in 2008. And and uh, we were immediately f- f- awash in money. And we did exactly what he thought we would do, which was hire everybody under the sun because yeah. all of a sudden we could fund all these other uh, studies. Do you find that, that your lab as well goes through those uh, ebbs and flows, and is it consistent with our experience that some administrations do and some administrations don't?
0: Well, I, so I I don't know that it's been across administrations so much as the big the big uh, flush period was the Obama's stimulus right, <laughs> NIH stimulus in a way, and I and we experienced. I think it became hard for my trainees to get jobs once that dried out, Wireless, like everybody got jobs and then they they, they disappeared. I think that, that that was followed by a period that was particularly tough for grant getting. It hasn't really changed uh, much since then. I mean, it hasn't like gotten drastically easier. I-,
2: I wonder if that has to do with the other health crisis that we're having.
0: Yeah, I, I don't
2: know. May I ask, when uh, when people come through your lab and they're undergrads, or, and I assume you have grad students as well, mm-hmm. um, at, at the end of that, are they all going into neuroscience or are there multiple disciplines that… Uh, many of the undergrads go to med school from here.
0: And so I have a lot of uh, pre-med, but, but a lot go on to, to um, grad programs, including in neuroscience my grad students uh, uh, some go on to academia but others uh, decide they don't want to do this with their life um, i have one former grad student's uh, program officer at nih who left a tenure track faculty position for that to work at the nih um, uh yeah well it's a good it's a we need good people there so i'm happy about that absolutely um, um, i had very few of my former grad students in uh academic positions but i think that that's that's because those are really competitive Mm -hmm. but i have some yeah
2: yeah and may i ask what what do you what are the names of the courses that you're teaching now And, and and what do you teach in these courses
0: well currently of my undergrad offerings I am offering a course called Neuroplasticity and Behavior.
2: <laughs> that must be well attended.
0: Well, um, it's, I keep agreeing to offering it as a writing instance, of course, that our department needs a certain number of courses where the students have to write a lot. And there is there are a lot of work for me, but uh, it needs to be done. I know. But that, uh, but it's really fun to teach about brain plasticity, as, as uh, you can imagine. Um, and then the other thing I do is I'm an honors research instructor. So psychology honors students take a two-course series with me. And that's really fun. And they're doing honors projects uh, on all sorts of topics in psychology.
2: So. One of the thing that deb and i talk about sometimes is how scientists can be god-awful writers and i i do peer review articles and a lot of times i'm just correcting the english although in their defense they're italian or they're chinese or something you can kind of tell that it's getting lost literally in the translation i bet writing is really important like deb was pointing out that you're a really good writer it's it's hard to make complicated things focused in a way that everybody can kind of read it. So that skill has got to be pretty important. I know you've got to read probably some pretty bad writing sometimes with your students, (laughs) but it's got to be important skill. Because if we want to translate from from bedside to bedside or wherever else, so much gets lost in science. And yeah, so it's probably.
0: Writing writing is a skill that takes practice and, and and benefits from guidance. Uh, my doctoral mentor, Tim Schallert, uh, was brilliant at improving writing skills. I really benefited from him. I was also a general humanities major as an undergrad, which probably didn't hurt. <laughs> uh,
2: you did your
1: share of writing. <laughs> yeah, your papers flow nicely. You just oh, well, thank you. you. set up, you set up, you explain, you set up the next topic and it just, it flows. I don't necessarily think it was, everything was easy, <laughs> to read. I had to go back and make sure I was understanding what you had written about, but the flow was, it was so easy to follow.
0: Thank you. Word limits. Word limits make us too mm. terse in our writing.
1: Yeah. Focused. There, there is terse. one more thing. Focused.
2: Terse sounds so negative.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It does help to have that limit because then you can't go off on tangents or go down rabbit holes like we do sometimes. Kind of like Twitter. Rabbit sorry, holes. sorry, in- go on.
0: Tangents are so fun,
1: though. They are, are, but not when you're grading a paper, at least. That's true. Mm -hmm. true. I wondered if we could bring this back around to something that you said in the beginning about communication. You and Pete determined that the researchers and the clinical side need to communicate. And you also used the word humility. And you use that word a couple of times, which I do think it's having some humility is really important for being able to to grow and to move beyond what you think might be true to find out what's really true. But it seems like communication across the, across the spectrum is challenged. And I wonder if you have any ideas or suggestions for how to make that happen.
0: I know that the way I have dealt with it is, is to go talk to people on the other side a lot. I think our field has formats to do it. Maybe you guys have solutions, but how do you make the people that should be doing it, who aren't doing it, (laughs) do it? And I I haven't come up with a solution (laughs) to that. And I have to say, I do feel like it's it's gotten so much better in the context of stroke rehabilitation. In that sub-realm of stroke, we're actually doing that pretty well compared to the way it was when I first started, in part because there's enough meetings across those divides. Um, And so I think that 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 helped a lot, having the joint meetings. I don't feel like we should make the clinicians go to to every RAT talk, I'm not suggesting suggesting that, but having people in the same room, and, and I, I said humility, but I guess it's not just humility, willing to, just not caring that you, uh, having an ego that, that doesn't depend on people thinking you're smart. <laughs> it's like yeah, the willing the willingness to let people think you're stupid because you're asking stupid questions i don't know if that's humility so much or, uh, maybe it's it, it's i don't charisms
1: <laughs> i don't care so, are good yeah that is so
2: <laughs> risky that that behavior and yet it's so important because i always feel like the dumbest guy in the room and it's because I'm like, you always surrounded for a long time by PhDs and MDs and MDs with PhDs. And it's like, just shut up, do your job, you know, and, but everybody has valuable ideas. And if you can get over your own fear of, of inability intellectually, you can really do really great things. I think. I,
1: I wonder if that it is that ego that keeps us stuck in a place because I, I find with aging, the I don't care are easier. And it allows for more questioning and curiosity.
0: I think when, when I was a youngin, uh, neuroscience was still uh, very male dominated. And uh, people assumed I was stupid. So I sort of got away with asking stupid questions. <laughs> I think in a way that maybe not everybody does. I, there was a way to Impress on Pong trainees that that's actually helped somewhat if people think, as long as they forget who that stupid was person that asked the question by the time they're reviewing your paper, right? (laughs) (laughs) Have your name (laughs) tag.
1: Exactly. Yeah, cut your hair. (laughs) I wonder too if some of the students that have worked with you, if they, as they go on through medical school, I wonder if they will be inspired. To I I communicate.
0: I I hope so. I, well, this isn't a med school, but boy, they send me letters uh, that say that suggests uh, the possibility. Yeah,
2: that's nice to hear. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, I, think I don't. Those are all of my questions. Yeah, those are all of my questions too. But I'm, you know, I'll just say this out loud. I hope Doctor Jones agrees to come on in sometime in the future and tell us what's going on and. And uh, with her research, as well as maybe more, a little bit more about translation from the basic animal science into uh, us humans. So maybe we should let her go. I we know, we've well, taken up a
1: up. bit of her time. Yeah. But well, this was
0: fun. Thanks, guys. Thanks Thank you so, so, so much. much.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.